You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. For those of you who might not know who I am, my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders here at Red Sea and have the privilege of bringing the word to us today. I was talking with somebody recently who was talking about their downward spiral of the relationship he was in. Uh, He said that there was some apparent misunderstandings and words were said and defensiveness set in and and which escalated to some accusations and some verbal attacks and it went downhill from there. Sound familiar to anybody? He said to me that he wished he could just start over with this whole series of things. He wished that he could just rewind the whole series of events, and if he could do that, he definitely would do things differently, and he was convinced that it would turn out okay. I told him I wasn't so sure that it would happen. Do you know that there was a time when God said, I want to start over? I want to rewind what I've done and sort of begin it again. The downhill spiral of of humanity has gotten so evil, so violent, that God wanted just to rewind the whole mess and start afresh. Well, being that he's God, he did. He began again. We're going to look at today in Genesis how God began again and uh, what that implies for us. Scripture, we need to begin with, though, that there is a downhill spiral of a mess. We've talked about this especially two weeks ago when we talked about Genesis 3, the fall. The Scripture is clear that God is serious about dealing with sin. Mankind's sin as a whole, but also our own personal sin as individuals. And let's be clear with what sin is. Sometimes people will define sin as sin is is breaking God's commands. And that's true. That's true. And I talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago. But it's more than that. That seems like just like, well, we just need to keep a checklist. And if we do more good than bad, then we're okay. And that's that's not the heart of it. I shared with you a definition from a theologian by J.I. Packer, and I'm going to put it up here. And it says this, that he's talking about what sin is. The moral deformity is dynamic. Sin stands revealed, this is how scripture describes it, as an energy of irrational, negative, and rebellious reaction to God's call and command, his desire to have a relationship with us, and his mandate that we do what he's given us to do. A spirit of fighting God in order to play God. That's what sin is. It's always in relation to God himself. John Piper, I've shared this numerous times, I think it's a great definition, a little more memorable than Packer's. John Piper says, sin is this, dishonoring God by preferring other things over him and then acting on those preferences. It's always dishonoring God. And it's not just in our mind and our hearts, but it's also in our actions. And our actions proceeds from our desiring something other than God. God, God, although in the scripture, always responds the same way to sin, whether in a society, a culture, or within um, our individual lives. He always responds with both judgment and grace. There's judgment and grace. Out of eternal justice, he must judge sin and evil, or he wouldn't be a just God. But also we know out of the eternal loving kindness, he always extends grace. There's always some place nearby his unmerited favor. When we have, we've already seen this in the Genesis narrative. We're going through a series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, God responded with judgment. We know it as the curse. 
And then he also provided, even in the midst of that curse, a hope that a man would defeat Satan. That was the first glimpse we've had of the gospel. And then when Cain killed Abel and God judges him, but he also provides hope of protection. Now we turn to a narrative, the next scene in this Genesis storyline, and we see in a grander scale that humanity has degenerated into a mess of evil and violence. And we also see that God deals with the situation with both judgment and grace at the same time. Today we're going to look back on the account of Noah and the flood. Last week, uh, just like last week, um, we did not read the whole passages. The passage of the account of Noah and the flood is four chapters of Genesis, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, and I'm not going to read through all four chapters. You're welcome, okay? Uh, What I'm going to do is instead of our normal just reading through the passage and then preaching, I'm going to read it as we go, and I'm going to highlight. We're not going to hit all four chapters. There's parts of it I'm not going to cover. That's okay. We're going to emphasize this theme of judgment and grace. And we're going to see that, that God responds to, and even in Noah and the flood, he responds to the, 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 the immense uh, sin of man with judgment and grace, not just in ancient history, but also as the scripture takes this event and applies it to our own sin in our own lives. But also, as Jesus and Peter tell us, the account of the flood points to the coming judgment of the coming of Christ and his second coming. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to begin towards the end. So a few things have happened, but we're going to jump in in verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to make comments, and we're going to work our way through some of these passages. In verse 5 of Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a heavy-duty sentence. Just every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, not just his actions, but in his inner being, was only evil continually. Not a good time to be there. We see how quickly and completely sin got out of control, how bad it gets if left unchecked. But in the next three verses, we see a summary of God's response to this verse, this condition that he responds. We see that God responds in judgment and grace. First, we see his judgment in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, he says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God had told Adam, even before there was sin in the world, he said, listen, I have things for you to do. I have a call in your life and a command for you to, to obey. If you disobey, you will surely die. That came even before there was sin. There was consequences to disobedience. And how mankind had gotten so bad that God said, you know what? Even though with Adam, he delayed that death penalty for a while. And same with Cain and Abel. It gotten so bad that God decided, I have to do something about this whole mess and I have to do it now. So he does. And he announces the impending destruction of mankind. But then we see God's grace in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Josh highlighted last week that little conjunctions like but have a huge impact. He states one condition, man deserves judgment. But in contrast to that, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Favor is grace and mercy. Grace is getting what we do not deserve, like forgiveness and favor and blessing. We don't deserve those, but God gives those to us. His mercy is not getting the things we do deserve, like his judgment and his wrath. So Noah found favor in his eyes. Noah 
did not get, was not going to get the judgment coming to everyone else. Well, why Noah? Why, why did Noah find favor in God's eyes? Well, verse 9 gives us the indication. Verse 9, he says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Very brief sentences, doesn't elaborate, but we know there was something different about Noah compared to everybody else. God saw something different in Noah, and he was, he was responding to God differently than everybody else. Doesn't mean he was, blame, he was uh, uh, sinless. He wasn't. But, that, but that there was something different about him. We remember, I don't know if you remember, but last week Josh highlighted a verse. It's one of those verses we can go over quickly. In verse 4, chapter 26, it said, At the time the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Some of those people back in those days started to call on the name of the Lord. They said, you know what, God, we recognize you there, and we're trying to make a connection. Noah, apparently, was one of those who called upon the name of the Lord. He wasn't perfect, but he was seeking. And then God summarizes to Noah what he's going to do. Verses 11 through 13. He says this, Now the earth is corrupt in God's, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Notice how it's not just that it's generically evil, it's violently evil. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted in their way. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, uh, with them. I will destroy them with the earth. Now we can imagine at this point, Noah's a little panicky. He's a little concerned, okay? Uh, it doesn't sound like things are going to turn out well, and Noah's not sure what's going to happen. But fortunately for Noah, God continues with his explanation. Verse 14, look at verse 14. He says, make yourself, he's talking, God's talking to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So God gives a command for, to Noah to build the ark. Now, I'm not sure that Noah even knew what an ark was. I, he, he wasn't a guy who sailed around the world. He wasn't a guy who kept animals in a boat. I'm not sure that he even knew what an ark was or what it was used for. But God said, this is what I want you to do. And then God, and we're not going to read them, but God provides details, including the dimensions of the ark and what it's supposed to be made of and how it's supposed to be made. And so Noah understands now, oh, this is what I'm building. I don't think he's ever seen one before. We have no indication that he has. And then verse, let's pick up at verse 17. In verse 17 he says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God clarifies how the destruction will happen. Now that you know that you're supposed to build an ark, you need that ark because the world's going to be destroyed with, um, be destroyed with flood waters. And God clarifies how he's going to be gracious to Noah and his family. We see that in verse 18. See verse 18? Again, it begins with, But I'm going to destroy the whole world with a flood, but I will establish my covenant with you, and, I, and, you shall be, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God does more than just save Noah and his family from the flood. God tells Noah that he's going to make a covenant with him. A covenant. A covenant is a commitment to relationship, and we'll unpack that a little later. But then let's pick up in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 4. There's a lot of other things happened in there. 
And it says, so God comes to Noah after he's been working on this for a while. He says, for in seven days I will send the rain to the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. The book of Hebrews provides us, provides us with an explanation of why Noah did all that, he, that the Lord commanded him. In Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the places, one of a number of places that Noah is referenced in the New Testament. And in chapter, chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, it says this. The author of Hebrews says this, And without faith is it impossible to please him, God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Then verse 7, by faith, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, there's no, no, hasn't rained yet, in reverent fear, that's worship, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, that comes by faith. He, by faith, inherited. It wasn't something that says, he's an heir of righteousness. He's uh, inherited the justice, the grace that God was going to give him. Even though Noah did not understand what was going on, he trusted God and demonstrated that trust by obeying what God had commanded him to do. This helps us understand a description of Noah way back in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. Well, the author of Hebrews helps us understand why the, why the author of Genesis, Moses, can say that. Noah's righteousness, his blamelessness, his walking with God were a demonstration of his faith in God. It wasn't his character by itself. It's that he lived with his faith in God. He feared God with reverent fear, and he acted accordingly. Let's pick up a verse 16 in chapter 7. And those that entered the, entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God... And, and, in as God had commanded him, and notice this line, and the Lord shut him in, and the Lord shut him in. It's important for us to take note that not only did God give directions throughout all these events, but God is working throughout all these events. And we'll come back to that phrase in a minute because it's really important. Then the narrative goes on to great detail, which we're not going to elaborate on, of the floodwaters covering the ground and killing every person, every living thing, every animal. And then after a long time, the waters recede and go away, and the ark is landed on dry ground. Now, we need to pause here. We need to pause here and talk about a few objections to this whole narrative. This, this is a famous, well-known Sunday school story for kids, Noah and the ark. How many of you have covered innumerable pages of Noah and the ark? and the rainbow, and the whole thing, right? And it's presented to us and presented to the world around us as a kid's story. It's a Bible kid's story. And yet we wrestle with whether or not it's true. Maybe you struggle with this whole thing of a flood covering the world, really? A God destroying all these people, really? I know over the years that I've struggled with this account. Or maybe you've tried to talk to people about biblical things. You try to share the gospel, and they bring up things to you, and they say one of their objections is that, uh, really, you believe those stories? A number of years ago, I was at my place of employment, and my coworker found out that I was a Christian, and he, was, he stopped, and it was just very abrupt, and he said, and, and he, he was astonished. He says, really? You, you've been to college, and you believe in Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale? 
that doesn't make sense. And, and all he had ever heard, he wasn't church, but all he had ever heard of the Bible were those kids' stories. And if you've been to college, believing those stories don't make sense. And he was trying to wrap his mind around these things. And he said, well, they're just a bunch of myths and stories. And that led into, obviously, a discussion that we had afterwards. It's okay for us to deal with the struggle of believing if these are real. In fact, we need to deal with the struggle of whether or not these are real. I want to give three responses to objections on the account of Noah and the flood that must be made... Uh, that, that Let me rewind. I want to give three responses to the objection that this account of Noah and the flood must be made up, that it can't be real, or at least not to the way it's described, and that it's really just an ancient myth. Okay? Three responses. First of all, the first objection is this. People object and say that the story of Noah and the flood is not a historical account, it's something that, uh, of something that actually happened. It's just an ancient myth. It's a very old myth. It's a story of how people try to explain things. And as proof, these people will point out that other ancient cultures also had mythological stories of a worldwide flood. The Hebrew Bible is not the only one, only culture, ancient culture, that had some kind of flood story destroying the world. The details were different, but the fact that those stories were there, some people say, see, the, the Hebrew Bible is plagiarizing those other stories. Well, <clears throat> that may or may not be true, and I don't think it is true. First of all, experts who study ancient cultures uh, acknowledge that myths develop from history, not history from myths. Okay? Myths develop from history, but you don't write, rewrite myths to make them history. Cultures do not take, make up stories and then later say, oh, what, they were true. What they do is they take what is true and they embellish it and make it into a myth. And what, instead, whether, whether, whether it's any historical facts, whether it's the Greek heroes or the American heroes like George Washington, we take what we like, we embellish it. He's, he's more grander. He's a bigger hero than we was before. The things we don't like, well, we ignore those or we gloss over those things. It's true with ancient history. The things they liked that made their culture look good, they embellished. The things they didn't, they don't. But the account of Noah was not, was, is given to us as a historical account. It's not given to us as a myth. It's not written that way. It's not understood by the Bible that way. Therefore, it probably was not something that was a history that turned to myth. It was something that is history. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, the logic flows. The second thing is, the fact that the ancient cultures have flood story does not prove that the, the Jews, the Genesis, plagiarized, but rather that those cu- cultures had something in common with the nation of Israel, or the people at this time. They weren't the nation of Israel yet. In other words, what I'm saying is that there's a flood, and no one his descendants survive. They repopulate the world. Next week, if Josh remembers to preach, next week... <laughs> We're going to see uh, the, the Tower of Babel where that, all that humanity is dispersed across the culture. What is a common near event that they all had before they dispersed? A flood. So they would naturally have that in common. Now, when they dispersed to different cultures, of course those things would have different cultural emphasis. They would have different nuances. But the fact that all those ancient cultures have a similar flood story confirms that probably was a flood. That's important for us to understand. The second objection 
that any, uh, well, uh, if they, we get is anybody with a reasonable knowledge of natural science knows that this kind of thing cannot happen. We live in a scientific culture. We live in natural sciences. It rules the way we make decisions in our culture. Therefore, we know these things can't happen. The world cannot be covered by water. There's not enough water. And, and there's no way these people and animals are going to stay in a boat for a year. Really? What are they going to eat? Or my bigger concern is, what are they going to do with all that poop? Right? They're shut in. Okay? There's no door. There's no portal. They're shut in. That, that's a concern that I would have if I was Noah, okay? Just saying. I think through these things at a high level here. <laughs> and this objection, though, that natural science proves these things are wrong, and it's not just Noah and the flood. It's, it's Adam and Eve. They can't be real people. It's the water of Red Sea uh, parting so the nation of Israel can walk through. Really? Jonah inside a great fish. By the way, it's not a whale. It's a great fish. For three days? Nah, it can't happen. A guy can't survive in a fish for three days. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down? Nah, you can march around it a million times. It still won't come down. Jesus walking on water, healing the sick, raising the dead? Those things don't happen. How about the virgin birth? How about the resurrection of Jesus? No, you, those can't happen naturally. So they couldn't have happened. They must be made up. They must be story. That's how this argument goes. Everyone knows that because of the universal laws of nature, these kinds of things cannot happen. And you know what? They're right. They're right. They can't happen by the natural laws of nature. However, the universal laws of nature cannot explain the supernatural. The, super, the universal laws of nature cannot explain the supernatural. By definition, by definition, conceptually, philosophically, and in language, the natural cannot explain the supernatural. Look at a definition. This is a dictionary definition. And supernatural, of, relating to, or being above, beyond what is natural, unexplainable by the natural law. I didn't make that up. People say things like this or that miracle cannot happen because science proves that it cannot happen. They're, they're ignoring the fact that a miracle, by definition, cannot simply happen naturally. That's why it's a miracle. If it could happen naturally, it wouldn't be a miracle. It wouldn't be supernatural. Does that make sense? Okay. It's like comparing apples and oranges. And do we honestly, if we stop back and think about this, if we honestly think if there's a God, maybe that's the issue, is there not a God, but if there's a God who created the entire universe, do, do you think he's going to struggle with these kind of things? The whole, you know, water parting, man in a fish, walls coming down, walking on water, raising the dead. Do you think he's going to struggle with any of these things? No, no, he's not. Okay, and let's go back to the account of Noah and the flood. Who is it that made the water cover the earth? However he did it. Who did that? God did. Do you think he had trouble doing that? I don't know how he did it. I'm not going to try to explain it. He did. And who kept the people in the boats alive and, and, and well-fed and, and odor-free, apparently? God did. And we, to we are told, remember back in 7, verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. 
That's how they survived. That's what it was about. The Lord was doing a miracle, supernatural work. That's why it existed. Now, for the record, I do not think that scriptures and science are contradictory or in opposition to each other. They're not. But they need to talk on the same plane. I don't think the natural can explain the supernatural. They can't, by definition. It's ridiculous. It's comparing apples and oranges. And I think sometimes we as Christians fall back because somebody will talk about science. They can't do that. Okay, we can talk about that. But that's not what I'm talking about. The scripture says this is God intervening. Even in something as basic as God, does God exist? People push back. And you Christians, I've had this conversation numerous times, mostly when I worked in the healthcare system. Oh, you, you really believe there's a God? You, and they would come to me and in essence, they'd say, prove to me there's a God. Prove to me there's a God. And my response was, uh, first, you proved to me there wasn't a God. There isn't a God. The burden of proof isn't on me. Cultures since uh, ancient history have believed in a God. We might disagree in the details, but there's a God. You're the oddball. You prove to me there isn't a God. And they can't. They'll big bang. Oh, were you there? Okay. No, no, you weren't there. But we, I'm not disproving science. I'm just saying, let's have the conversation about the same thing. The Bible says, the scriptures say, the fool says in his heart there is no God. People do not come to an intellectual decision, a rational decision, that there's no God. They come to a heart decision. They don't want there to be a God. And until they're born again, until God changes the heart, they can't believe it. So let's don't go try to duke it out in science. Let's tell them what the scriptures say. We need to move on. Third objection, and there's, another, there's more. Some people say, even if this account of Noah and the flood was a myth, it doesn't really matter. It's just a myth. It's just a story. We can still hear the story of Noah and the flood and get the point that, God, that the author's trying to get across. Sort of like an Aesop fable. You remember the Aesop fables? Okay, oh, the fox and the, all those stories. But they always had a point, and they were good points. We can just treat the Bible as an Aesop fable. Well, they say it doesn't matter. Well, that's, it, it does matter. It does matter. It mattered to Jesus. It mattered to Jesus. I want Jesus to tell us this. I want to use his own words. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is asked a question, among other things, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? He's getting near the end of his life. He's heading to the cross. And his disciple says, hey, you're going to come back. What are we looking for? And Jesus answers him. He picks up in verse 36 of chapter 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, verse 37. What's his reasoning? Jesus himself. For as were the days of Noah, so were in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we're not going to highlight the coming of the Son of Man. I just want to know. Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, in fact. And what is his proof that he's coming back? Noah and the flood. Jesus obviously viewed the events of Noah and the flood as real events. In fact, Jesus used it as a historical precedent that what was going to happen when he returns to judge the world, it'll be cataclysmic and, no, and, and everyone will be caught by surprise. That's why Jesus used that, just in the times of Noah. Jesus was saying, remember, God has already judged the whole world once 
And he can and he will do it again. Jesus is not making this point based on myth. Jesus is not making this point based on myth. And if Jesus was wrong, and this is Noah and the flood is really a myth and not historical, then we have a problem with Jesus. What else was he wrong about? What else was he misguided about? His second coming, which he used it as an example, who he was as the Messiah, all that he had said about the Father loving us. Is that true too? What about all he said about the kingdom and eternal life? We can go on and on. If Jesus missed it here, then he probably would have missed it other places too. So yes, it matters that these are not uh, myths, but they're actual uh, historical narratives. We need to continue with our text. Let's get back to the narrative. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. But the God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So he comes in, he removes all the water. And then they land on dry land. I'm cutting through 19 verses here, okay? They land on dry ground, and, and then they get out, okay? Fresh air, boom. Then, and then verse 20, we'll pick up at verse 20. No, so then Noah built an ark, an altar to the Lord, and took, out, took some of every clean animal and some every uh, clean bird and offered a burnt offerings in the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said to, in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You catch that? In one way, God says, you know what? I'm not going to destroy everybody in this way again. But we still have a problem. We still have a problem. Now, it's not that they do, everyone does everything evil all the time, continually, whatever that verse said earlier. He's just saying, for the intention of a man's heart, the way we're oriented, the Packer and Piper definitions, from our youth, that's who we are. God still, God, although God starts over with humanity, the problem of sin still remains. Therefore, God's judgment on man still remains. And he has to deal with things differently. So we see this in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So in a way, in a way, not exactly, but in a way, Noah functions as a second Adam. The population starts over uh, with his family, Noah and his family. And they're also called and commissioned by God, similar to Adam was. We're not going to spend time going through that. Hey, I want you, not only am I saved you, but I got a call in your life, and I'm commissioning you to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. But God knows that their sinful nature, as they multiply and fill the earth, that sin will also multiply and fill the earth. So God anticipates that things are going to get out of control again, and that the constant evil and violence will grow again. So God responses to the inevitable development of, with his same themes of judgment and grace. We pick this up. First, he says judgment. First, judgment. As a means of judgment, God is putting some responsibility to restrain evil and violence on people themselves. As different than it was before, Noah, now God's saying to them, I'm making you guys partially responsible to restrain evil among yourselves. Where do we get that? Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it from man. 
From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made, God made man in his own image. Now, I'm not going to unpack here the pros and cons of capital punishment or anything like that. But the point is that people are going to have to work together in whatever culture they're in to restrain evil that invariably will rise up in any culture and society. God is sanctioning people, cultures, societies, governments to restrain evil. And they've always done that. The Apostle Paul reiterates this in Romans 13 when he's saying, why did God set up governing authorities? He said he did so that they would bring sword against wrongdoing. In verse 4 of chapter 13, he says, when, when functioning properly, governing authority, and obviously the operative is when functioning properly, the governing authority is a servant of God, quote, is a servant of God, an avenger of, who carries out God's wrath on a wrongdoer, crows quote. So God says, judgment, you guys need to pick up some of the responsibility. But secondly, even in, in chapter 9, God gives a means of grace. God makes a covenant with Noah and through Noah with the rest of humanity. A covenant is a commitment to relationship. It's saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. And some of them are, have, uh, um, some of them are two-sided and some of them are one-sided. In this particular one, God's saying, this is what I'm going, this is my commitment to humanity until, time, time, until it comes to the end of time. And it, it, there's no requirement of Noah. There's no requirement of him to respond, or us to respond. In verses 8, chapter 9, verse 8, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, I will establish my covenant with you and to your offspring. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. And never again will all flesh be cut off by waters of a flood. Never again will I destroy the world by a flood. That's his commitment. He didn't say he would never destroy the world. He said he'd never do it by a flood. And then 12, God says, And this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you for all future generations. They'll remember, remember this. It doesn't even have to be written down. They'll remember this. I have set a bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I, God says, Whenever I see the bow, I'll be remembering my covenant. What's the bow? We know it as the rainbow. And it's a bow pointed where? Up to heaven. Okay, it's like an arrow bow pointed to God, okay? And God says that whenever that is in the sky, I will remember that I will not destroy the world. That's important for us here in Portland when it has rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And we think maybe this is the, you know, God had changed his mind. We see the rainbow. Oh, he hasn't changed his mind, okay? At least not yet, okay? God's covenant with Noah was not based on people being better or their inherent goodness. It was based in God's grace and mercy. And the rainbow, even today, is a sign of God's generous grace to us, his commitment to relationship, even in our culture. This combination of judgment and grace uh, sometimes is called blessings and curses, and it's a theme throughout the Bible. And as we've seen, Jesus himself leverages this and illustrates his reality of his second coming with this idea of judgment and grace. Noah's mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, Old Testament too, but in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter actually mentions Noah three times in his first letter and his second letter. And like Jesus, he understands the flood to be an historical event. And he leverages it to make a point for what he's trying to say. We're only going to look at one of them. He does it three times. We're just going to quickly look at one. 
In 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, Peter leverages the reality of the flood to counteract the people who mock the gospel and disregard the reality of the Lord's term. You believe it or not, back in those days, back in the first century, people mocked the gospel and said, what, Jesus coming back? No, never happened. Okay? They've been saying that for 2,000 years. Well, Peter says, First Peter reminds them of both what the prophets and the apostles warned that in the last days there will be scoffers, there will be mockers following their evil desires. And then we pick up a verse 4. And I want, Peter, I want us to read Peter's words so we hear his reasoning, not just my reasoning. First, in verse, chapter 3, verse 4. And they will say, Where is this promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all these things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It never comes true, they're saying. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact, fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed, listen to this, was deluged with water and perished. They forget that. No, he doesn't, they don't forget that. They deliberately overlooked this fact, verse 5. He continues, verse 7. But, another contrast word, by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's again referring to the second coming of Christ. Verse 8. And now he's saying this to his readers. But, Do not overlook this one fact. Do not overlook this one fact. Contrasting them with the mockers. Beloved, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is of a day. It's not natural science. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you hear the grace in that? His patience, his grace? Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away, and the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works, and, and it will be done, and, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is important that Peter is saying, I am talking about the people in our generation who mock the Lord coming. They forget that he did it once and that in light of that, he's going to do it again. It won't be water. It'll be fire. What is Peter's main point in all this? What is he trying to say? When people deny and even mock God's impending judgment, they're really denying and mocking God's gracious patience with them. God has judged the world in the past, and you can be sure he will do it again. That's what Peter wants us to hear. God is going to someday do it all over again. He's going to rewind. He's not going to rewind. He's going to recreate the world. And the Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. It won't be by water, but it will create it. We need to remember here, we talk a lot about the gospel at Red Sea, the gospel message, that it's good news. But we need to remember that the gospel message that we believe as Christians and as we share with non-Christians includes both judgment and grace. Gospel is good news, but it's only good news because there's bad news. 
If there is no bad news, then we don't need good news. It's not just good advice. It's an announcement of something that has happened, both judgment and grace, that combination. We all deserve God's judgment. And because God's eternal justice, this judgment has to be given to somebody. Somebody has to pay the price for God to be a just God. But because we are both the ones who deserve that judgment and we're unable to pay the debt that we owe to God, we are trapped and we're helpless, left in ourselves. But that's where the gospel comes in and combines this idea of judgment and grace and makes it the gospel message that we believe and that we preach. In, in Romans chapter 3, there's numerous passages we could look at. I, I just want to wrap this part of Noah, this, the, the emphasis of judgment and grace that we see in the account of Noah out of Romans 3. I just want to highlight some things. And again, I want to read what Paul says because I want him, though I'm going to make comments, I want to see what he says. And notice the interleaving, the connection in his mind of judgment and grace. In verse, Romans 3, 23 through 26, He says, for there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is in the same state of condemnation and condition of bondage. Sin is not breaking an arbitrary set of rules. It's always in regards to to what God is, our disobedience to God, his call and command in our life. As Piper said, we all dishonor God by... um, by preferring other things over him and then acting on those preferences. We all deserve God's judgment. There's the judgment. But verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came that is in Christ Jesus. He's justified. We are justified. That is, we're declared just. The judgment against us has been satisfied. It has been canceled. It has been paid. The cause of this act of justice is God's grace says there, by his grace as a gift, his undeserved favor. The means for this justice is God's payment made in Jesus Christ on our behalf. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This is how the payment was made in our behalf. Jesus absorbed God's just punishment in our place, and instead we have freedom, we have forgiveness. Our part is to receive it. We believe. We don't believe that it's just true. Faith is not believing that something's true. The Bible says Satan believes that it's true, but he's not saved. Faith is not only believing that something's true, but it's trusting in it personally that it's true for us personally. It's a confident trust. Verse 25, "This this is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is to show God's righteousness, to demonstrate God's righteousness, his justice, his honor, his glory. Looking back, God is patient with people's sins. Now he does not ignore it. He has dealt with it. In verse 26, lastly, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. It again is to show. It's not hidden. It's not a mystery. There's no hocus pocus. This is a demonstration of what God is, his justice at the present time for us now, and that we is just. God is justice, is maintained and honored. He is the justifier. He himself provides that for us. And the one who has faith in Christ, as we said, faith is a confident trust that this is true for us personally. Do you have that faith in Christ? 
that faith that you deserve God's judgment, but instead God has placed that judgment on Christ on your behalf. To receive it, you need to, we need to repent, say we were wrong in living on our selfish ways, but we, God is right in clear, not only declaring us sin, but we receive the benefits by trusting that he has paid the price for us. If you have not done that, I encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to Josh or I, one of the home community leaders. Talk to anybody, but don't delay on that. But if you have responded to the gospel, if you have responded to the message that Christ died for your sins in repentance and faith, we want to encourage you, encourage you to come up with us and celebrate and receive communion. We receive communion every week because it is a demonstration of both God's judgment and His grace. I don't think we often think of communion as judgment and grace, but that's what it is. If, you, if, you, uh, if every week we receive communion, we're acknowledging that. So as you come up today, if you responded, you're a Christian, I encourage you to come up and, we, and go up to the tables you can, as a family, as an individual, as a family, as a home community. Break off a piece of bread and drip it in the juice or the wine and pray and just say, Lord, thank you. We acknowledge that your judgment, we do your judgment, but we get grace instead. And it's because of the body and blood of Christ. Let's celebrate that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us. We just, we just thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the grace we receive in the midst of your judgment. A grace that we can celebrate for eternity because of how wondrous it is for us. And we thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.